In the words of St. Paul, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Well, I can tell already this is the high five fun service. <laughs> Here we are on the first Sunday of the new liturgical year, the beginning of the Advent season, and my first Sunday with you. And it seemed like a good idea when uh, Suzanne graciously offered me the pulpit <laughs> instead of her. Um, and then I read the gospel. <laughs> we get these lessons. Uh, Jesus basically describing the apocalyptic end of time. What a great way to start. I think maybe instead of Advent 1, we should call this Sunday Eschatological Apocalypse Sunday. Has a nice ring, don't you think? I'm sure we would pack people in if that was outside on our sign. You know, most preachers avoid using words like eschatology because they're afraid everyone's eyes will glaze over. It is kind of a big churchy theological word. I think it's a real shame though because the word simply means the study of the last things, or as I often put it, what's going to happen? That's what it's about. What could be more simple and easy to understand, and frankly, what could be more human than the longing to know exactly what's going to happen? It's in all of us. Now, I know that Lowell often quotes the Robert Wicks phrase, have low expectations and high hopes. He, he emailed me a great quote from Wicks around that, suggesting maybe I, it would be a good way to start Advent. <laughs> I, th I thought, or maybe, maybe a great way for me to start my first Sunday, low expectations, high hopes. Wick says it's good to have high hopes. Hope not for particular things, but a deep hope grounded in God. A hope that something good, something dear and beautiful will come. Will come of it if you are looking and listening with an open heart. When we are truly open, we will be surprised by something in the encounter. And that surprise, that unique presence of God, Wick says can be called by another name, holiness. Wick's explanation of expectations versus hope applies to that big word eschatology as well. Because it seems to me that in Christianity, particularly American Christianity, when it comes to eschatology, trying to explain the last things, what's going to happen, then 
we sort of have two sides. One side, we have some folks whose eschatology is full of very high expectations with absolute certainty. They've got it figured out, sometimes down to the day. And then there's a lot of the rest of us folks. Our eschatology consists of high hopes with faith, but we don't necessarily have it all figured out. Well, Dennis, that sounds all well and good, but then what are we going to do with today's gospel? Listen to that. Jesus, imagine, Jesus is right here, and he's saying, in those days after the suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers and the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the end of heaven. I think it's a real shame that instead of me reading that gospel, we don't have Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Couldn't you hear him doing that? So now what exactly am I supposed to do with a passage like that in 2017? Well, now if it was years ago and I was in my former religious tradition, and I think high expectations and absolute certainty, then I could do a lot with it. We would be here for about an hour and a half. <laughs> In the Assembly of God Church, we loved apocalyptic literature. It seems like that's all we ever talked about. It all got explicated, argued about, preached on regularly, like all the time. Just once, I want to hear one of those guys preach on something poetic like the Song of Solomon. I think they'd be stumped, except maybe for Jimmy Swagger. <laughs> now, when I was a kid, I can remember having these bit long two-week revivals, and specifically, I remember one itinerant evangelist who had us absolutely convinced that the rapture would occur within the coming calendar year. We believed it. He was good. Every night for two weeks, we heard about the apocalyptic end of the world. What on earth did that do to my psyche? This guy was convinced, and I'm not making this up, he was convinced that either the Secretary of State at that time, who was Henry Kissinger, and of course part of that was, you know, he spoke with an accent and he wasn't native born in the United States. He thought either Henry Kissinger or, get this, Elvis Presley would be the Antichrist. <laughs> Said they've just not emerged yet. Wait, it's going to happen. 
profoundly affected me. Every day after school, I would go to the Truman Drug Store. I would get an ice cream soda for, yes, 35 cents. And I would hold court telling all my Baptist and Methodist friends what was about to take place in the near future. I was actually pretty good at it. But of course, I was an odd child. During the service, I would take copious notes. And the next day, I would go loaded with enough gloom and doom to make the Left Behind series look like some mild, anemic melodrama on TV. <laughs> Honest, one day I explained the entire book of Revelation, chapter by chapter, to my friend Glenn Crow. And at the time, it sounded pretty good. Now, it's interesting to think back on those times and wonder how it, maybe it twisted my thinking. But now in some ways all of this apocalyptic preaching and speculation, and I think about it, it was well suited for the times in which I grew up. The 60s and early 70s were apocalyptic in and of themselves. Civil defense training, remember that? <coughs> I mean, I learned how to use a Geiger counter at school. Watching friends go off to the Vietnam War. It all created fertile ground for visions of the end of the world. I suppose that context made the second coming of Jesus seem pretty desirable. Come on, Jesus, get us out of this. We need to escape. I don't miss the fearfulness of that tradition and theology. But you know, if I'm honest, I still appreciate the watchfulness. Living each day as if it might be our last and watching closely, no slumbering, thinking any moment that Jesus might burst through the clouds and bodies would start popping up into the sky. I assure you, it created a real edge to your day. <laughs> you really didn't need coffee or caffeine. You were edgy enough. You see, you live your life in a different way with that kind of edge, that level of expectation and watchfulness. I suppose the closest that most of us come to that is when someone has a close brush with death. You know what I mean? When you come close enough to peer over the edge and suddenly realize how precious and valuable life really is. When that happens, you look around at everyone and everything in a much different way. It may not have happened to you, but just be patient. It's as if you can see it all clearly for the first time. 
One of my favorite people is Tom Long, who teaches at Emory. And, and Long challenges us not to surrender eschatology, the study of last things. He says, don't surrender that to the conservative fundamentalist. He gives a great example. He says, as Duke Ellington once said, there are two types of music, good and bad, and you can tell them apart by listening. <laughs> he says, just so there are two types of eschatology, and you can tell them apart by living them out. The first kind of eschatology depends on a literalistic grip on biblical image and results in a gospel that is intellectually implausible. Stuck in the clouds of a pious and irrelevant heaven that never even touches earth. If that is your only option, the retreat into a self-contained present tense is our only ethical choice. But the second kind of eschatology allows the eschatological affirmations that Christ is risen and Jesus is Lord and allows that to exercise tension upon the present tense right now, generating both judgment and promise, creating the possibility of ethical action in the world sustained by Oh, well, when I read and think about that, having lived out the implausibility of that former kind of eschatology in my younger life, I'm really eager now to live the other kind that Long talks about. Being able to feel that tension, to imagine and in a sense to experience the full realization of not just the end of the world or even the end of an age, but more importantly, what's gonna happen? What comes next? The absolute and perfect completion of the reign of God that creates a profound dynamic power that shapes our lives, not somewhere off in the by and by, but right now. It is that living into the vision of God's reign that provides us with the blessed hope we must have if we are to faithfully continue this Christian pilgrimage. Then, instead of being stalled and absorbed by this doom and gloom, we are enlivened by new life. Just like that fig tree that sprouts new leaves that assure us that the new summer is upon us. I pray that we will be so filled with God's grace and the vision of God's coming that rather than being preoccupied with creating some kind of artificial humanistic kingdom for God, we will have our eyes open to the work that God is already doing around us. 
and simply begin to share and participate in that work as we are guided by God's Holy Spirit. Amen.